0: Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Tommy Humbert, or for some of you, you might have known me as Tom for a while. Um, but I am uh, going to be preaching out of Nehemiah this morning. I'm one of the pastors here, and while Marshall does most of the heavy lifting when it comes to preaching, uh, we are equally invested in knowing and leading and guiding all of you here this morning. Um, so we're going to be going through the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to pick up where Marshall left off last week, which was the end of chapter seven. And then we're going to go through all of chapter eight. Um, so before I read it, though, let's catch up and remember a little bit where we've been. So the Israelites, they had been in exile for about 70 years. Um, they had been under Babylonian control, Jerusalem had been destroyed in at least three different waves by the Babylonian armies. They first, they destroyed the temple, then they destroyed the walls, and then they burned the city. And so at the beginning of Nehemiah, in chapter 1, Nehemiah learned about the state of his city. He learned that the walls were broken down, it was burned, and he was heartbroken. Remember, he was kind of just sitting there weeping in, verse, in chapter 1 about the state of his city. So he ended up um, getting up from his morning and he was taking action and relying on God simultaneously. Remember, those aren't mutually exclusive. And he went to King Artaxerxes and he asked him if he could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. So King Artaxerxes granted him permission, and so Nehemiah went to Jerusalem. And at first he inspected the walls by night, because he knew that this would kind of alert the people in the surrounding cities that something was going on. So he went out by night to kind of look at the walls, see what was going on. And after he saw what they could do to fix them, he set himself and the people to building. So he went about rebuilding the wall with all sorts of people. There was rich people, there was poor people, there was kids, there was teenage girls. All of these different people, they come together with one purpose in order to rebuild the walls of the city. And then right about the time that they were beginning to work, there came this opposition. Remember, it was led by Sanballat. And at first, all he was doing was mocking them. He was kind of like, oh, you guys are never going to do it. Look at how tough this is. Look at your kind of ragtag crew. They were wearing the wrong clothes. They didn't have the wrong tools. Um, so he's kind of just laughing at them. But the people pressed on. In chapter 4, it said that they had a mind to do the work and that the Lord was with them. So the people kept going. And as they're making progress, Sambalat then kind of has this renewed um, opposition Um, he decides that he's going to actually do physical harm. So remember, he tried to um, lure Nehemiah to him so that he could harm him, but Nehemiah kind of smelled out the trap. He didn't go, Um, and he had faith in God through this whole time. Remember, there was the false prophet who tried to lure him into the temple, which would have been against the law at that time, since Nehemiah wasn't the high priest. So he did not go into the temple, but he was spared through this. He was spared even though he didn't go into hiding. Um, And the people's trust in him was actually increased. In chapter 5, we had this kind of side... Little story where we learn that the Jews were oppressing their own people. So there were some rich people in the town that they were extracting taxes from. Nehemiah heard about it and he was not happy about this. He comes down on them pretty hard. In fact, it says he holds an assembly against the people. So you can see there's this huge people that are kind of like, you guys need to stop doing this. If you don't do this, these are all the curses that are going to happen to you. But through the work of God, the people actually repent. They say that we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to exhort our own people for money. And Nehemiah leads the way in this. He actually refuses the governor's tax that was rightfully owned for, rightfully due to him. Right? He could have taken the tax. He could have kept at least enough for food and clothing. But he says, you know what? This is too hard for the people. I'm not going to take anything from you. Let's just focus on what we're doing right now. Um. So, Nehemiah has come, and then in chapter 7, we see that the wall was finished. In record time, it was finished in 52 days. And then, last week, Marshall ch- showed us at the end of chapter 7, how we had this whole list of people who had returned from exile to Jerusalem, and how this was proof of God. And his faithfulness as a period of time that how, even though for a long time it seemed as though God has left his people. Remember they were in exile, there was no worship, there was no um, sacrifices, they were gone, the temple was gone. It seemed like God was gone. But then we have this list of people who return and we see how God had been faithful to reinstate them. How he had been faithful this entire time and how he had not left them. Um, Which brings us to our passage today. So if you'll open your Bibles to Nehemiah, um, we're going to read starting in chapter 7, verse 73. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under the seat around you. It's on page 403 in the Pew Bibles. So I'm going to read it, all of chapter 8. Um, Let me pray first, and then we will read. Father, I pray for our time this morning that we would... um, be attentive to the Word, that you would speak to us through your Word, and that we would love and desire to obey your Word. God, we pray that we can accomplish this through your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so hear the Word of the Lord this morning. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants in all Israel, lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah and Masiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashpedana, Zechariah, Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. "'lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads "'and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. "'Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, "'Shabbathiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kiltiah, Azariah, "'Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites "'helped the people to understand the law "'while the people remained in their places.'" They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of God. All right, so the temple has been rebuilt. That was in Ezra. The city walls have been rebuilt. The gates are fixed and guarded, and the population of the returned exiles has been recorded. It's been written down. So what's the first act of this new people? Look back at verse 1. Okay, they come together as one man, a unified people, despite all the diversity we saw before in chapter 3. It says they come together as one man, They come together and what do they ask? They ask for the word of God. If there's one thing that I'm trying to get across to you this morning is that God wants a people who have a heart for him and a heart for his word and he accomplishes this through his word. Okay, so God wants a people who have a heart for him and he accomplishes this through his word. So there's three parts to this chapter. There's the proclamation of the word, there's the interpretation of the word, and then there's the application of the word. And my hope for all of you this morning is that you'll desire God's words, you'll understand God's words, and that you'll obey God's words. And before we get into it, know though that none of these hopes are possible without the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot desire, you cannot obey, you cannot even understand Without the work of the Holy Spirit and without the work of Jesus and what he did on the cross. So we start out though with the proclamation of the word. So notice who takes the initiative. Is it Ezra? Look back at verse 1. It's not Ezra. Is it Nehemiah? No, it's the people. The people tell Ezra, bring us the word, bring us the law of God. They tell him because they have a hunger and a desire for the words. Right? And we can see how different this is than the Israelites in prior days. I don't know if you guys remember the story of King Josiah, but this was prior to the exile um, in the days of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, um, he was prophesying, and one of, um, one of King Josiah's people, I guess, heard him, and he knew that he had written down all of his works on a scroll. Right, God had told Jeremiah to write it down. So um, he tells King Josiah to... Um, basically, what was going on that Jeremiah was having all of these prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem, and obviously the king would not like that. So he told him to bring bring me the scroll, and he wanted it read to him. And so um, one of the king's people who was next to him brought him the scroll and started reading it. And then he would read it. He would read a section of it, and then King Josiah would cut it off with a knife take it, and then throw it into the fire. These are the words of Jeremiah. And so then he would read a little bit more. He cut it off with a knife, and then he threw it into the fire. And then they basically, he threw the entire scroll into the fire. And then I don't think it's a coincidence that King Josiah was among those who died during the siege of Jerusalem shortly thereafter as the Babylonians were coming. You see, there was no respect for God's word. There was actually an animosity towards God's word. Um... In those days that definitely contributed to the downfall of Jerusalem. And then you think on the other side of that. Think opposite to that. Whenever there's been a reformation, a renewal, an awakening, the word of God has always been central to that, both in the Bible and in um, king history, or in history. Sorry, that king before was King Jehoiakim. I got the king wrong. King Josiah was the other story. He was the good one. That was Jehoiakim got that all wrong. King Josiah was the one who actually found the word of God. So he was the one who discovered it at the bottom of the temple. It had been hidden away for quite some years, and he reads it, and he's broken hearted. He says, we haven't been following this. Like, what's going on? And so Josiah actually reforms the people. He's one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. Um, He reinstates the Passover feast. He reinstates kind of what's going on, and all of the um, Israelites are reformed and there's this renewed sense of love for God. And you can think, that's in, that's in the Bible, and you can think of um, the Reformation in Western Europe where the translation of the Bible into the language that the people could understand was the catalyst for kind of this renewal and a turning back to God, um, one of the biggest shifts in human history, at least in the last 2,000 years in the church that we've seen. Or you can think about even the reformations that are currently going on in Southeast Asia and in China. And it's no coincidence that the Bible is being smuggled in there in the languages of all the different people that they can understand and that this is a catalyst for the people there returning to God. Or you can think about even what Lila read for us in Acts. Like we have this brand new people. Jesus had died. He had resurrected. You have all these new believers in Christ, who are Christians by means of his death and resurrection, and what is the very first thing that Peter does at the inauguration of this new people? He reads from the scriptures, he interprets them, and he shows the people how these Old Testament scriptures have been pointing to Christ this entire time. This is the very, this is the very beginning of the new people, the new Christians in the New Testament. Um... So God uses His Word to create in us a desire for Him. So we should desire to hear His Word, and that's kind of, um, I guess, a chicken or the egg thing, right? So God uses His Word to create in us a desire for His Word, but we need to desire His Word to actually have a cre- actually have a desire for God, right? So what? How do we? How do we get that? How do we get past that? So I mean, I'm sure some of you this. Uh, past week have been making resolutions. I'm sure there's probably more of you that have been sticking up your nose and saying resolutions are stupid. I can't believe people make resolutions. Like, what's the point of that? regardless of how you feel about resolutions. And I guess in one sense, any resolution that's built on your own strength, yes, it will fail by February, which is probably why most people stick up their nose at them. But through the Holy Spirit, I want to suggest to you this morning that you resolve to read the Bible, because the Bible is what gives us life. The Bible is what will sustain you. It is more important than food, So I don't want to hear that you don't have time. If you have time for breakfast, then you have time to read the Bible. I promise you it is more important. Um, So that's just a suggestion that I want to make to you. So you may be thinking to yourself, okay, yeah, so I get it. I have time. There's always time. We just choose to do other things. But what if you just don't really have that desire? What if you don't want to read the Bible? What if it... um, doesn't come naturally, you just feel like you don't have a lot out of it, Um, you can't get into it, forget even reading the Bible at at home, what if like even at church, you've been saying, man, like I've been coming to church recently, but I'm just not really, it seems like I'm not really getting that much out of it, I'm not feeling it that much, it's not, I don't know, it's just like I can't really get into it, I just don't have this hunger or longing that maybe I had before, maybe it's come and gone, but it just seems I'm going through this dry time. And I would say to you, that's an understandable feeling. I think most Christians throughout their life have come and gone um, through something like that, where they've not felt this desire for the word. And so, um, I just want to say to you that God is gracious, and he loves us, and he wants us to have a heart for him. And that the way that he does this is through the word. Okay, that's how he gets us to have our hearts inclined towards him. He does this through his word. So, what can we do? So, what if we are those people? What if we're just coming to church and we're not feeling it? And I'm going to say to you that we can prepare. And I'm getting this. Look at verse 3. Look at the end. It says, All the people, the ears of all the people, were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. So the people had prepared for this day. They were ready. They built the platform. They were all attentive. Um, They were ready to hear the word. Now, so is it the job of the preacher to keep the people's attention? I would say yes. Like, the preacher should work hard at being engaging and keeping the people's attention. But that's not what it says here. It says... That the people were attentive. They were ready. They're the ones who took the initiative. They were the ones who wanted the word read to them. They were the ones kind of going out and doing all of this. They were prepared. Even look back at uh, verse 73. The people were living in their town. So they weren't even in Jerusalem. So they had to go make all these preparations. They had to figure out how they were going to get to Jerusalem to hear the word. They were figuring out what did they have to bring, what they have to pack, what were they going to eat. They kind of they did all. All of this in preparation to hear the word of God. Um, so what can we do? I think it, for us, this can be a few things. I think um, the one thing it can't be, though, is just showing up here on Sunday cold without having thought about what you were going to do, without having um, given a thought to God or the word or how you were going to worship that's not going to work. So maybe it's going to bed earlier on Saturday so you're not falling asleep. Maybe it's getting up early, going on a walk to kind of invigorate yourself. Um, if you look in the bulletins, we've got the next like three or four sermons printed, and we do this every week. And the hope is that at least once during the week, you'll read the text that we're going to be preaching on that Sunday, and you'll pray for the preacher. A simple way to kind of just warm your heart, kind of get the juices flowing, so you know what's going to be said, you know what the text is that you're going to be listening to that Sunday, and you're kind of getting yourself ready. You're getting ready to hear the Word of God, and you're praying for the preacher. You're kind of engaging throughout the week. And so I would encourage you, read the text before you get here at least once and be praying for the guy who's preaching. Um, So that's just kind of how we can prepare. That's one of the ways we can come in if you're feeling cold. I think preparing will help. And then so we'll keep on looking at verse 3. It says that Ezra read, and I kind of laughed when I read this, it says he read from early morning until midday. So that's like four, five, six hours, something like that, right? And I'm, don't, I'm not going to keep you here till three o'clock. Um, a common question among pastors, like, how long do you preach for? How long should a sermon be? Um, And there's actually, I saw it in like, I think the USA Today um, a couple weeks ago, but there's this big survey where they did uh, an analysis of over 50,000 online sermons and talked like they were doing keywords and they were also doing the length. But it was interesting, they divided the results by denomination. It said the average sermon length, and compare this to kind of the four, five, six hours, the average sermon length for Catholics was 14 minutes, um, for mainline Protestants was 25 minutes, For evangelicals, it was 39 minutes, and then for the historically black churches, it was 54 minutes. So you can kind of just see the difference in sermon length, and also the other interesting thing was over the past 10 years, every single one of those denominations, the sermons have gotten shorter. So they're getting shorter and shorter and shorter as we continue on in time. So I don't know that there's a right answer to how long a sermon should be. I don't think that just because uh, Ezra read for half the day that that's how long sermons should be. I think it depends on a lot of things, including how gifted is the preacher, um, what's the difficulty of the text, how long does it take to explain what they're going through. And I think most importantly is how long are the people attentive, right? So the people obviously were attentive here, for four, five, six hours. So I think maybe the onus needs to shift a little bit from the preacher, from the pastor, to how much do the people want? Are the people asking for more? Are they asking for, like, we want the word. We want to hear from God. Um, and so I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's true of us today that we do have short attention spans. And I think that, um, yeah, maybe the people, maybe we can't pay attention for that long. Um, So what can we do about that? Is it an issue of we just can't pay attention, or is it an issue of we're not hungry for the word, we're not really desirous to hear it spoken, to hear it taught, to hear it preached? And I think that's something that we can ask ourselves. Um, But one thing, I guess, of just even thinking, like, how do I pay attention? Like, I'm just so scatterbrained. I'm, um, I think we can prepare even in for the kind of this long-term, okay, how do I work on being able to pay attention? So I think we can do that in a couple of ways. It's um, doing things in our life that increase our attention span and not doing things that decrease it. So I think some of the things that decrease our attention span are um, binge watching TV shows, checking our phone all of the time. And I am guilty of this as much as any person. I mean, it's it's crazy. Like I can't even. I probably can't go five minutes usually at work without looking. Did someone call me? Did somebody text me? Did something happen? Um, but it's just this immediate grab, and I think that's killing our attention spans. But then I think we can increase them by doing things that actually require us to pay attention. So things like praying for a long period of time or reading a book for a long period of time or going on a walk without bringing your phone or even building something or making something, like basically anything that requires and an, a longer time of focused attention is actually going to mold your brain into being able to pay attention for a long period of time. so that 's kind of the side topic. I think there's things that we can do practically to increase our attention span, but I think even more than that is do we have a hunger? for the word of God. Like if we actually believe that the word of God gives us life, that it's sustaining, that it brings joy, then of course we're going to pay attention. And so I think that's just something that we can ask ourselves. So still focusing on the proclamation of the word. First, we saw that the people had a desire. They're the ones who wanted it. We saw them prepare. We saw them um, build this platform so that they could hear. They built kind of a pulpit so that Ezra could stand up and all the people could hear. Um, a very practical way of making sure that the word of God is heard. Um, and we saw them, they traveled from their towns, so they made plans in advance of their journey. And then we see that they had this immediate response to the word. Okay, Look at verse 6. It says, all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So the people heard the word of God, and then immediately they worshiped God. Now, There might be some people who could read this passage and say that they're worshiping just a book. They're just worshiping, you know, you see this reverence, Ezra brings in, he walks in, he's carrying the book, he lays it down, he opens it in the sight of all the people, they all stand. Um, But that's not true, and you read just, you don't even have to read much deeper, but you read a little bit deeper. Yes, there's a high reverence for the word, but the people, look at, when Ezra blesses the Lord, the great God, the people worshiped the Lord, So people, we are not worshiping a book, we are not worshiping the words, we are worshiping the one true and living God who revealed himself to us in this book. Yes, he revealed himself to us in this Bible, but we worship a living God. So God uses the word to incline our hearts to him. That's the goal, is that our hearts would be inclined to God. Our goal is not that we have memorized all of God's words. The goal is that our hearts would be inclined towards God. That is what God desires. That is what he wants. He wants a people who love him and who know him. And so we're going to see, though, even though God primarily uses the words that he is given to us in the Bible, he doesn't exclusively use them. Even in this passage, we see that he uses other people. He uses prayer. He uses the Holy Spirit. He uses teachers. But first and foremost, God has revealed himself in the word. So we see this immediate response after hearing. Later, we're going to see an ongoing response of the people. So there's both this immediate response, and then there's an ongoing response. But focusing on this immediate response, we see that it's an emotional outburst. And so I think it's easy for us sometimes, we look at other Christian traditions where maybe um, we see sensationalism, we see emotionalism, we chalk it up as, oh, that's just smoke and mirrors, used to manipulate There's no place for that in Christianity. And I think that's true in extreme forms, that Christianity is not just emotionalism. It's not just kind of working yourself up into a frenzy. But true Christianity is emotional. True Christianity is emotional. It will affect our emotions. You cannot experience true Christianity without having your emotions affected. Okay, look at the people. They're raising their hands. They're bowing their faces down to the ground. They're crying out, amen, amen. Okay, This is why we sing our songs. It's a way for us to together express our emotions to God. It wouldn't be improper, though I know this is asking a lot, for you to raise your hands during the songs in praise of God. It wouldn't even be improper for you to lay down and bow your head in worship to God. I doubt that's gonna happen, but it would not be improper. <laughs> okay, God invites us to express ourselves. He wants our He wants our emotional outburst. He wants us to show how we're feeling to Him. He desires this, He loves this. God is not an unfeeling God. So we have this immediate response, but in order to have that emotional response, right, it wasn't. Just the emotions. They had this response after they understood, right? They understood the words, and that's what caused the emotions. It wasn't emotion for emotion's sake, but something had gripped their hearts. It was the understanding of the word, all right, there's this saying that goes, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Now, I've never understood this question. Probably my engineering brain, I'm like, of course it makes a sound. Sound is just waves moving through air. The tree, when it hits, there's waves that go out. It makes a sound. I'm sure there's some philosophical argument to that phrase. But um, I never got it. Yes, it makes a sound. <laughs> um But I think a similar question could be asked if the word of God is proclaimed and no one understands it, is the gospel preached? And I would say, no, it's not preached if no one understands it. Just the saying of words in a way that no one understands is not preaching the gospel. It's the understanding that matters. So look at how this is emphasized. Five times in the first 12 verses, the word understanding is used. It's used in verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 12. The understanding is what is most important to Ezra and most important to these people. So how do we promote the understanding of the word amongst ourselves? I think first off, the teachers and preachers need to be prepared. So this is the first time, I guess, in this series that we've met Ezra. But he was a prominent character in the book right before that. And Ezra and Nehemiah were originally on the same scroll. The Bible used to be on scrolls. It wasn't a bound book. Um... But we meet Ezra there and we learn that he was a scribe and skilled in the law of Moses. And Ezra, in chapter 7, it says that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Ezra had been preparing for this for his whole life. He had set his heart. This was his job. He was a priest. He was, his main goal was to study the word and to teach it. So he was well prepared for this occasion. Um, so the teacher needs to be prepared. What else? How else can we seek to understand? So we see here that even though Ezra was probably the most gifted, he was probably the most prominent, he was the guy front and center opening the book, reading it, we see that there's an additional 25 names of people who are helping the other people to understand the law. Um, Then there was the catch-all of the Levites. So the Levites were there as just, their job was to be the priests of God and to teach the law to the people. Um, So it says that they go to the people while they remained in their places. And so I assume that this morning wasn't just like, uh, five hours straight of Ezra just reading the law. It seems like it was probably Ezra read and preached for a little bit, and then these 25 people would go out to the people where they were. They probably like broke up into smaller groups and um, had make sure, like, alright, are you understanding it? We're kind of, we're reading through the law. Do you get what he was just saying? Is there any questions? How can we learn better? How can we make sure everyone understands? And then Ezra probably read and explained a little bit more, and then these people go out to the people, make sure they all understood. So there was this Um, there was this intentional kind of way that the people were making sure, that Ezra was making sure that everybody was understanding what he was saying, okay? The goal of preaching is always to make sure that people understand. You do not want to preach the word of God with nobody knowing what's going on. This is also where we can do things like reading the Bible together with another person can help in promoting understanding because I think everybody has different insights and different knowledge that they pick up. Or this is where we do, I suggest, using things like having a study Bible or having a good commentary because the Word of God, there there are some things that we can read and it is easy and we can get it on the first try. That's Um, probably not a huge portion of the Bible. Then there's a huge portion that it takes a little bit of work to understand, where you might need, especially your first time through the Bible, you might need somebody to teach you, or you might um, need to run things by. And this is yeah, where I think having something like a study Bible or a commentary is a good thing in promoting the understanding of the Word. And then there's some parts that you're probably never going to understand before we meet Jesus. Like There are some things that are very confusing, and I would encourage you to not get bogged down, bogged down in those things. Um, and just know that there's some things that God has not revealed to us, that he's not intended for us to understand while we are here. That's Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. Um, and we just need to trust that that is what is best for us, that God knows what we need to know, and he will make, um, make that available to us. So God wants a people who love him and know him, and he accomplishes this through his word, right? And the greatest example of this is, of course, Jesus, right? He was the word made flesh, so God knew that his people didn't fully understand his word. He knew that people would never be able to um, obey his word perfectly. And so he sent his son to come and make it clear. So we see Jesus faithfully teach the word. We see J- Jesus perfectly obey the word. And then finally, we see Jesus, who understood the full wrath of God and the punishment for sin, willingly sacrifice himself so that we could live. So Jesus understood the gravity. He knew what he was doing, and he chose to sacrifice himself so that we who could never follow it could be reconciled to God, so that we could have life, so that we could have eternal life. So you see, God, he wants a people whose hearts are towards him, and he does that through his word, And he also does that through his word and his son. He did that ultimately. He nailed the coffin shut. He said, this is over. Sin is no more through the word made flesh, through his son. And so Jesus could give us a heart of flesh to replace our heart of stone and so that we could worship the one true living God. So once we have this understanding, once we kind of get that, once we've grasped that, once we've known what that's meant um, for our lives, once we have this new heart, then we have the ability to joyously obey and follow God's word. And we're still going to need help doing this, right? We still need the Holy Spirit. But now we have the ability to joyfully follow God. So the people heard the word. And initially, their first response was weeping and mourning. So they still, obviously, they didn't totally get it. And in one sense, it's not always inappropriate to weep and mourn. In fact, a lot of times that is an appropriate first response. When your first kind of understanding of the gravity of your sin, an appropriate response is to weep and mourn. But quickly we see um, Ezra and Nehemiah correct the people. They're like, no, no. This is a day of rejoicing, like the new people of God are set up, like this is a celebratory day, this is a holy day, like this is not a day to weep and mourn, and so they still needed to kind of fully understand what it meant that God had been with them through all this time, and you might be asking like, well, where's the joy, like all they're doing is reading the law, there's no joy in the law. Um, Yeah, there's parts of it that are boring, there's parts that are old, there are parts that are weird. But I think the law is a gift from God. By knowing it and doing it, we actually grow in our joy of God. So you can think of the law as the Ten Commandments. That's a good summary. You can think of um, even Jesus' summary, right? What is it? Love God above all else and love your neighbor. So the people, though, as they were reading the law, as they were kind of going through it, They would have also encountered again and again and again a God who did not leave his people. You can think um, Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, that God continually was faithful. He promised never to leave them or forsake them. The people were continually disobedient, and God stayed with his people the entire time. You can even imagine them reading through uh, Deuteronomy at this point, kind of going through the section where it lays out all of the curses and blessings. And there's all the curses for the sin. And it's prophesied that if they turn away, if they do not obey the words of the law, they are going to be exiled for a period of time. And then at the end of that, it promises that Though you will be exiled, God will not leave you or forsake you. And if you repent, if you return to him, then I will once again come to you. So you can imagine the people sitting there hearing these promises and realizing, like, this is happening right now. Like, this is the fulfillment of that promise. Like, we are the people, like— In Deuteronomy, like a thousand years ago, in Moses' time, this they were talking about us. Like we are the people who are turning back to God, and how amazing that would have been to see these promises fulfilled. So you can imagine then, like joy and celebration is the correct response there. So notice notice too the type of joy that was produced. It was a joy manifested in generosity. And this is one way we can kind of check ourselves to see if we are finding our true joy in the Lord. So God gives us gifts. They had a feast. Um, He gives us food, drink, celebration. But the true Christian enjoyment of these gifts is not just the consumption of them, but the sharing in these gifts. So look at verse 10. It says, Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. So our joy in God is shown and multiplied through sharing it with others. And then finally, we come to the last section of the chapter. In verse 13, it says, On the second day, which was the very next day, after they had just heard the six-hour sermon, the very next day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They wanted more, right? They just had this long sermon. Now they want more. And of course they do. The word of the of God is food we need to survive. So this isn't like hearing the word doesn't quench our desire. It doesn't make it go away. It actually fuels our desire. So hearing the word of God for those who love him fuels our desire for the word of God. And this is kind of the chicken or the egg thing that I'm talking about. It's like the more you read the word of God, the more you desire God in his word. So th- it's this self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, of course they want more. So their desire grows and grows As they love him more. So the people, they're there, they're reading, and they come across Leviticus 23. And it says in the seventh month, which is the month that they were in, that they were supposed to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So during this feast, you can read about it in Leviticus, the people are supposed to set up these huts that are made out of branches. They're supposed to go collect, and for a week they're living in these little makeshift huts. And this was to symbolize what they had lived in um, during the Exodus, when they had been saved from Israel. So it was kind of just a time of remembrance. It was a time to teach your children. You can imagine the kids would be all excited. Oh, we're going to go make these houses out of sticks and leaves. Like, why are we doing this? And it's so that they could explain to them, the Lord had saved us out of slavery. Like, you might not remember, but your great-grandparents were slaves for a long time, and this is, what we, this is what our people lived in. So it's just this, like, physical tool to teach children about the Bible, about God, about what God had done for his people. So they come across this, and they're like, shoot, we need to do this. So what do they do? They go out and do it. They obey the word of God right then and there. They're like, it's the seventh month. Like, let's go so they read it and they go out and they celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so I don't know how many of you guys have ever been in a sermon or been reading scripture at home and you suddenly realize you come across something that, man, I have not been doing this and it says right here that I should be doing this. Um, one of the greatest gifts of the Holy Spirit is that we have the ability to change. The Holy Spirit changes us. Like, we have the ability. Those of you who are in Christ, who know Jesus, have the ability to change. And I know many of you, and many of us, we get stuck in these sins that we've been in for a long time. And I know that sometimes you don't even want to open your Bible, because it's hard, or it's convicting, or it's difficult, or you don't want to be confronted, or you just, it's, you just can't get out of the muck. And I want to encourage you that you can escape. Like through the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to do as these Israelites did, to follow God, to love him, to have our hearts inclined towards him, so we can know and love God and we can obey him through the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's pray that we would receive those gifts. God, we are so grateful that you have given us your word, that you have given us a way not just to meet your words, but to meet you, that we can encounter you through your words that you have given us. I pray that we would have a renewed desire for them, that you would give us um, just an attentiveness, a hunger, that you would create in us a new heart that loves you, and wants to follow you, and wants to share this news with our friends, Lord. The greatest news of all is that we can be free from sin, that we can be free from the penalty of sin, that we can be with you for all eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.